Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's episode is sponsored by my Lit Daily Online Yoga Classes. This is an exclusive pass into my personal practice and program that I created from experience as a physical therapist and 20 years developing my Lit Yoga methodology. There is a different class with me every day, including special monthly live streams, so you can feel your most lit up anytime and anywhere. Get a three-day free trial today by going to movementbylara.com and clicking daily classes. Let's get moving. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a Movement by Laura podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today, I have a very special guest, Brett Larkin, who's here with me, and she also is a yoga teacher. She also specializes in some really interesting aspects of yoga. She is an entrepreneur, a mom, and without further ado, I welcome Brett. Laura, thanks so much for having me. You're so welcome. It's great to have you. And um, I know we just met, but I'd love to hear how you got into yoga. That's always like everybody loves to hear, how does a yoga teacher find yoga? What was your path? A boy. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) A boy. It's it's always about a boy, right? So very early when I was in college, I I had um, a boyfriend who was really into meditation and I had always been a dancer and I was doing Pilates at the time. And he suggested I try yoga because we were experimenting a little bit with meditation together. And that was, I was very early in figuring all of that out. And he said, well, hey, you know, you dance and you like Pilates. Yoga seems like a natural fit. And of course, my response was, that's hippy-dippy stuff. That's easy. And I wasn't really interested. So of course, what drew me in eventually was Bikram. And it's so interesting because I hear from so many of my students now that that was their first touch point or entry point with yoga as well, was a Bikram class. And I think it's just meeting us where we are in that very early part of our journey. So I started doing a lot of Bikram. And of course, that led to an exploration of later all the different styles. I found my big teacher in New York, Alan Finger at Ishta Yoga, trained with him. And I was in denial about how much yoga meant to me and how much I wanted to share it with others. And I think that's also a common story that I like to share and help people call themselves out because I was saying I was doing my teacher training to deepen my practice and evolve my own spiritual development and all these things. But deep down, I really wanted to teach. I so desperately craved to be in the front of the class and leading. And I see that in a lot of people who come to my trainings, and I'm sure you do too, like they have that calling, they have that spark. They just don't know it's okay to pursue it or talk about it yet. So then I ended up moving to the West Coast. I missed my teachers in New York very dearly. I wish they had videos online, but they didn't. I started playing around with video and yoga very early, probably in 2011 or 2012. It felt late at the time, (laughs) but actually it was quite early to be putting yoga on YouTube. And that spiraled into 
what is now my full-time job teaching yoga on YouTube. I have a mobile app, which is a membership site off of that. And then online teacher trainings have been my big focus the past four years. So that's kind of my story in a nutshell, quickly. <laughs> that, well, that's amazing. And did you, um, after you did your teacher training at ISHTA, did you, do, the way you teach now is, did you continue that or did you kind of bring in some of your own background, like you were saying from dance and Pilates? I did. I also went to massage school. So fascia is a huge interest of mine. I love the chakras. The moment I was exposed to them, I just fell in love with them. And getting to work with Anadea Judith was a huge highlight for me this past year. So I started bringing in and weaving in. But one of the things that I think is so great when you really find a lineage that resonates with you is I still feel like an Ishta teacher at heart and everything that's grown with uplifted yoga and what I've done. It definitely has my own flavor for sure, uh, bringing in a lot of the myofascial release work. But it's still very strong in the sense that Ishta stands for Integrated Science of Tantra, Hatha, and Ayurveda. So it's really about yoga with the big Y has always been my passion. So not just the poses, but how do we go deeper? How do we go beyond? How do we use this as a vehicle for transformation? And so, how, what is yeah. what is the way you think is most effective? First of all, through the medium of a screen, like in YouTube, how, how have you found that you've been able to translate that for people to feel that that big why of yoga, that it's not just we're just moving around the mat and being done with it, but how have you implemented this into your teaching on in YouTube especially? It's a great question. It started with my own direct experience. This is kind of a fun, funny story, but I was actually in India studying yoga <laughs> and I was doing yoga glow in my hotel room at night. And I think I was one of the first, probably a hundred people subscribed to yoga glow or something. I mean, this was so early. And I did a class with Elena Brower, who's another teacher of mine. I love her. And I had just the most profound experience doing this online class. I was in my hotel room and my hotel room was like the queen bed was so big that there was like a slice, this little sliver of the room where my yoga mat could fit. It was totally awkward. And yet I felt so connected to Elena in that moment. It was magical. And it was so ironic because I was totally by myself in this hotel room in India where I was studying yoga and doing yoga all the time out during the day and with other people. But I had the most profound and intimate experience in this class through the internet. That was a big moment for me. After that, I think I started getting really interested in online because my own experience had been moving from the East Coast to the West Coast and kind of losing my community was how desperately I craved really high quality teaching, teaching that also talks about yoga a little bit off the mat, like we're talking about here. And it was my experience with that class with Elena that I said, wow, this is possible. Because if you had told me before that you could have a profound realization or aha moment or awakening or sense of deep peace through an online video class, I wouldn't have necessarily believed you. But after I experienced it myself, that's when I got really interested in how this could potentially be something I could pursue. And I'm a coward. Laura, like I will tell you this, I was too scared at the time to teach in studios because I still felt like I was a fraud and why would anyone want to listen to me? And I had all the stuff that, you know, I, I know a imposter lot of students syndrome, have this stuff, right? the imposter yeah. syndrome, right? So for me, filming the video felt safer because for dance, I, anytime I wanted to go to dance camps or auditions, like you'd film yourself and send a video. So this just felt more comfortable for me. So the whole thing on YouTube kind of grew out of my fear of teaching in person. And then of course, once YouTube gained traction, I started teaching in person. I taught at dozens of studios and at Google and you know all the places. But it's just so interesting that we all just need to figure out a way to move forward despite fear. And for me, as counterintuitive as that may seem, the video and YouTube route felt much safer because of my background. In terms of your original question, I think a lot of it has to do with how we cue and talk about yoga asana. If we're talking and cueing yoga asana, whether it's in person or on an online video, in a way that's not inclusive, 
Like for example, bend down and touch your toes as opposed to bend your knees and relax your torso forward. There's so many different ways of saying things with our language where I think even as advanced teachers, we maybe don't realize how much we're excluding certain parts of the population, like draw your knees towards your chest instead of draw your knees into your chest, little things like that. So language is something I'm really interested in and I've always been playing with. How can I teach in a way that's very inclusive, but also I can't see the students in front of me when I'm teaching on YouTube. (laughs) So I kind of have to guess and imagine what they might be struggling with. So this is a skill that takes a lot of time to cultivate. I think teaching online is different from teaching in person. You have to use your voice a lot more. You can't assume that people are looking at the screen. And then in terms of bringing in the yoga with the big why, I think it's really drawing people's attention to the fact that the asana is not a goal. Like the, the poses themselves aren't the goal, but it's our presence inside the posture that's the goal. That's the biggest thing that I think I'm trying to communicate when I'm teaching. And again, I think it comes down to language, how we talk about and instruct the asana. So how, you know, how does it feel to be in this triangle pose? Can you take a deep breath? Can you find more length in the spine instead of pushing, pushing to get into like the deepest variation? Does that make sense? It was a very long answer. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I love it. And I, I agree with that. I think that's what, um, I think that's what people are craving and, you know, then you have the, it's funny that you came from Bikram because I just watched that Netflix video, which is, um, it's, it's on my watch it? list for this weekend. Yeah. So, I mean, but, but he attracted the, the kind of person that wanted to be almost barked at and told what to do. And this aim, like, do, you know, is so uh, direct, like this is wrong. This is right. Um, and even, you know, all the scripts that he, like exactly what he said was passed on. So it's funny because you came from that, but, but I agree with you. That's usually an entry point for people because people like being told what to do. And I think the, the, the fascinating thing about the practice of yoga is it's, we can instruct and educate, but at the end of the day, it's really asking the person for their own internal inquiry about, like you said, how does it feel in the pose? How does it feel when you're transitioning? Are you staying integrated? Are you holding your breath? Are you using your breath? Or is your mind going somewhere? You know, all those things. So it's, it's, it's very interesting to, to be able to navigate that fine line between really instructing so people know what the heck you are saying to do, but also giving them the tools for their own journey and inquiry. And that, that, yeah, that you're never really there. It sounds so hokey, but it's true. There's, is there, we do, I mean, how many times have we done a warrior one or a down dog? Like thousands and thousands of times, but each time there's a novelty in it. And the novelty is the presence of your mind at that exact moment. So I, yeah, everything you said, I, I resonate with. And I think that it takes, I'm sure that you've evolved even your teaching online because there is this different skill set of being able to imagine like, am I saying this so everyone gets it? And I know like, I love that you said that uh, being inclusive, I'm really into language too. And when my people go through teacher training and I hear this, kind of, I get a lot of 200 hour already, you know, um, certified teachers who come through my training. And so they have kind of their their dialogue or monologue or whatever in their, the script. And they'll say, you know, walk to, um, step your foot all the way to the front of the mat. And I'll say, don't, that's giving them a direction and it's giving them an action, but it's also giving them kind of the ideal. And a lot of people can't step their foot all the way to the front of the mat. So how about just step your foot forward toward your hand? Like you said, like the little, little tiny things, um, we can't dismiss how much the um, power they hold for people who can't do that for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, myofascial tightness or flesh in the way or joints, blah, blah, blah. You've got to like set a person up for success every step along the way. So I really appreciate your take on that as well. And what do you hear back? So getting the feedback, do you get a lot of interaction from the people on your YouTube channel? I do. I mean, I owe everything to my students and my audience because I was someone who never thought I'd make a full-time living teaching yoga. Even once I finally admitted to myself 
this is my dream. I want to be a healer. I want to be a teacher. And for me, it was also, I was like, I want to touch people. I want to heal. Hence the myofascial release and massage and body work. Even once I was able to admit all of that to myself and do all the training, I still had the money block and the business block of, well, no one makes money doing that. So I was always doing it on the side while working a corporate job. The YouTube channel began to grow and gain traction and people would comment. And it's so incredible because you think, you know, this is the internet, right? So you'd think that the comments would just be horrific and frightening and sexual and disgusting. And that just wasn't the case at all. There were so many people who loved the yoga that I was putting out there and were requesting more feedback. What happened is I realized that the YouTube commenting system just wasn't well set up for creating community. Like I'd find myself answering the same question 17 times. I'm sure you do this in your own social media too, right? It just happened. So I set up a Facebook group where I was kind of trying to cultivate or create more of like a community, more of a sangha, right? Like where everyone could connect with one another. And from that Facebook group grew what became my membership, which is essentially a premium version of what you get on YouTube with a lot of class plans and thematic guided experiences and, and things like that. I and, and then I never thought anyone would want to take yoga teacher training online. That never occurred to me. And then the people who are in the app requested it. So I think this is another thing that I try to share with as many teachers as possible. And I know you have a lot of incredible teachers in your community too, is that it's through getting into action with your students and co-creating with them that the magic happens. I think a lot of times as teachers, we put all this pressure on ourselves. Like we have to figure out the thing or the product or the training or the digital offering that someone's going to resonate with. And that's just, I found that it's not the way you end up never taking action because you just feel so burdened <laughs> and afraid that mm-hmm. whatever you're going to do is going to be wrong. <laughs> and so you just get stuck in this perpetual cycle of procrastination and you put so much pressure on yourself. What I found has been probably like 99% of my success is instead just letting all of that go and getting so real with my students and just literally asking them, like, what do you want? And that's what I started doing on YouTube at those early beginnings. What classes do you guys want to see next week? What do you want to see the week after that? Oh, you want classes in a series? Oh, you want a plan of what class to do each day? That never would have occurred to me. I mean, a lot of us who have strong practices at home as teachers, it's like, we don't need a step-by-step guide on what class to do each day. (laughs) But people love that. So I think the more that we can step out of isolation in the creative process and the teaching process and step into this sense of community, the better. That's been my experience. So what would you say to, and I'm sure you've had this question, but what would you say to people, teachers who started kind of like you, like you did and thinking, I don't really want to teach in a studio. I'd like to get into making money doing this gig because there's a lot of people out there who aren't making money doing it full time. What are some of the, what are some of your guidelines? I'm sure you probably have some kind of business part of your training, but maybe give us a couple snippets. What would you say to those teachers? And this could, you could also insert personal trainer or anything like anybody else in this movement system world. I would say to really work on your mindset and to get really good coaching and to clear your money blocks. I've found blocks around earning money, around healing work or doing what you love is omnipresent. I see it everywhere. And yes, in my 300-hour training, it's my training's weird because it's literally like 40% entrepreneurship skills and 60% yoga. The biggest tip that I think I can share with folks is one, a little bit of like what I already talked about, which is like just getting into action. I think So many of us think like our brand or our business is something we're going to figure out. Like I'm going to figure it out and then I'm going to display the logo and I'm going to display the offerings. But instead, your brand and your business is something you're going to discover. As you get into action, facing your fears, of course, every single step of the way. And then my other big tip would be to fail fast. To fail fast. I was really lucky because my job in corporate was very much part of this entrepreneurial lean startup 
movement in San Francisco that was happening at the time. And the big benefit I think that I had from being in that kind of environment was that failure was celebrated. It was like, oh, this this thing didn't work. Great. That's super wonderful information. So we don't waste more money or resources on that. Let's try this instead. So being willing to throw a lot of things at the wall and see what sticks. I think people look at businesses like mine or businesses like yours, and it seems so cohesive and put together. They didn't see the behind the scenes. I launched so many products that no one bought, right? That didn't stick. Um, You just don't, they don't exist anymore, right? Because no one bought them. So I deleted them. Uh, (laughs) And... And that's something I'm trying to talk about more, right? Like we kind of just, we fail our way to success essentially. But what I find with, I think kind of like the teachers you're talking about is so many of them are not willing to do that. They are too afraid to even take that first step. Or the fear is so big that experimenting feels frightening or impossible, or they're suffering from the disease known as perfectionism. Yeah. It affects mostly women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and you know, they want their thing to be perfect before they put it out there. And I have always been super sloppy. I'm like, until this thing is proven, we are not, I'm not putting extra resources and you know, making it perfect and kind of letting that go. That has been hard. That's hard, but it's a skill set we all need to learn. I agree. I agree. I think perfectionism is a huge roadblock. And fear, of course, you've tapped into it. I mean, is is massive. People, um, the what ifs. And I remember early on dating um one of my one of my boyfriends for a while was a in business. And he was, you know, it's the it's the business saying, no risk, no reward. And I just remember thinking, wow, that's so simple and so powerful. Like you aren't gonna get a reward if you don't put or, you know, if if you don't take risk sitting comfortably, not um, going to the edge of fear, going through the fear is is really not going to, you're not going to advance. So I, I think that's great. I like that fail, f- fail fast. <laughs> yeah. And get <laughs> really, really comfortable with discomfort. Yoga also helps us with this, right? I tell my students, I'm like, if you're not uncomfortable in your business, you are not growing. You're not going anywhere. I am still today uncomfortable in my business every day. It is pushing me, stretching me, making me uncomfortable in some way, shape, or form. And if it doesn't, I think of some really scary email to send to someone that feels terrifying and force myself to do that. Because this is a learned skill. Being comfortable with discomfort is a learned practice. My personal practice right now is primarily a Kundalini yoga practice. And one of the things I love about Kundalini is it really stresses your nervous system intentionally, right? By either holding your arms out for very long periods of time or doing breath of fire with your arms above your head for really long. But it's like you're putting that stress on the nervous system to, and then practicing staying calm. It's like this laboratory, a practice laboratory for life. And you start building up that muscle of like, okay, things feel very uncomfortable, very uncertain, very afraid. I'm afraid someone's not going to respond to that email. I'm afraid about whatever I just put out. But I I can be comfortable with that. I can breathe with that. I can use all my yoga tools to still feel centered and present. And I think once we start really getting focused on that capacity, that capacity to be uncomfortable with discomfort, that's when like the doors start to really open up. Life gets really exciting. I agree. I remember when I um when I started going outside of my studio and teaching and well, even before then, I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to always have something in the in the tube, so to speak, that is uncomfortable for me. So it started off like I was teaching a workshop at a different studio. And then it was, well, I'm going to teach this to a bunch of teachers at this Lululemon conference. And there was like a hundred yoga teachers I was teaching. And then it was like, okay, I'm going to teach at a festival. And then it was, you know, then it just kept going. And at some point, um, like I still crave that, that, that discomfort that, because that actually really, really honed my skills and my performance. And I think that, um, we are kind of trained to not, it's, things are a little sterile. We're not trained to be 
um, uncomfortable and be okay with that. And I, I, I love what you said about the nervous system with Kundalini, because I think part of yoga and it obviously Kundalini does this specifically, but other yoga practices too, is really making your nervous system more intelligent. So it can handle the different things that come your way. And that you also don't stay in this kind of adrenal fueled flight or uh, fight or flight or freeze state of mind for a long period. Like you might have it, but you know how to uh, tone it down as well. How did you get into Kundalini? It's another fun story. So back, (laughs) back, right around when I was experimenting. So Bikram was sort of my, I call it my gateway drug to yoga. Mm -hmm. And then I was just trying all the drugs, right? So I was going to Jivamukti in New York and and Usara and everything. So of course I tried Kundalini too at that time. And I was young, you know, 20, 21. I went to Golden Bridge Yoga in New York, which very sadly no longer exists. And I went to a couple of classes. I had an okay experience. Of course, Kundalini is not very... The dancer in me didn't love it, right? Because it's just right. a lot of like seated and moves that are very repetitive. But I was like, mm, okay, maybe. Then... There was this one teacher who came to teach, Vermouk, who I later trained with. <laughs> this one teacher, yeah. And, <laughs> the teacher, uh, practically. The yeah. teacher. And yeah. she came to guest teach there. And she taught a Kriya that literally sent me into a tailspin. It was like all my negativity. Because my students always tell me, they're like, Kundalini's making me angry. I'm like, nope, it's just showing you all the anger that's already there and bringing it up. She taught a Kriya. I was not prepared. I was not in the right place. In retrospect, it's almost like it was a, an awakening. But at the time, I was just... I was so angry during this entire class. I was swearing at her. I was hating myself. I was sobbing. I was in pain. I had plans after this class to go have dinner or do something. I literally made it down to my bicycle because I biked everywhere in New York and was able to bike home. And I, I, I texted. I was like, everyone, I'm out. Went home and I was like in bed for a day and a half. I mean, it was that bad. And after that, I didn't do Kundalini for a very long time <laughs> uh, because it was such a negative experience. It was such a triggering experience. And this has been one of my huge goals. And I'm so excited now because the Kundalini that I'm putting on YouTube, that the YouTube algorithm is really liking it. People are really liking it. And that makes me so excited because I think if I had had a, a little bit of a gentler introduction or if someone had framed what was happening for me at that time, things could have gone very differently. I didn't know any of the things that I know now and that I try to tell everyone, which is that you know, Kundalini is designed to trigger you, right? It's designed to make you angry. We're intentionally putting stress on the nervous system. I just kind of had a breakdown. So I avoided the, the, the style of yoga, that style of yoga for six or seven or eight or so years. A, a very close teacher friend of mine started getting back into it and I was signed up to go on one of her retreats. And she told me she had a varying levels in this retreat. So she had some really beginners and she had some really advanced people. She said, listen, I'm going to teach some Kundalini because Kundalini is a great equalizer in that sense because the physical postures are, as we said, it's, it makes it more accessible for people who are maybe new to yoga or can't do you know, wild thing transitioning to Ardha Chandrasana, transitioning to, you know, reverse warrior, whatever. So I got exposed to it a little bit through that retreat. And I was, I was kind of angry at her. I was like, hey, this was not a Kundalini retreat. This is not what I signed up for. And I cried the whole retreat. Uh, the other people on this retreat, like God bless them. I cried the whole time. I cried through every Kriya. Like I just, I hated it. I was sobbing, but it was all the stuff coming up, all the stuff coming out. And because it was a retreat context, this is why studying, you know, when you can get with a teacher or do something or immerse yourself for a longer period of time, it's so valuable. Because I had the time and the space in that retreat context with the teacher to also talk about what I was going through, I turned a corner and I started to sort of see how, while I still really disliked it, it was... I could see that there was a transition happening, that it was showing me where I was asleep in my life and where I was in denial. And it was, it was literally holding up a mirror to all my patterning that I'm the victim, that I'm, you know, we all have like these stories. So after that retreat experience, I started integrating it more and more and more, kind of slowly, really slowly. 
And now it's like the love of my life. I love it. I'm always doing a 40-day practice. I studied with Guru Mook. I'm studying with Guru Singh now. I mean, it's it's become such a source of pleasure for me. And it really helped me give birth to my son. I had an un- unassisted home birth, which was not intended, but literally it was like Kundalini Yoga got me through it. So not don't intended. get me started on... Yeah. I was going to say, wait, not intended. Like, did, he cut, yeah. did he come and you just... Yeah, our midwife couldn't a, get yeah. there in time. Our midwife could not get there in time. And, oh, so uh, you're literally unassisted. Like you yeah. and your hu- hubby, or like that was it? That was it. And our dog, he wasn't that helpful. No, I bet not. <laughs> he was probably freaking out at your like, wow. So yeah. did it help you feel like you transcended the the experience of pain or did you just feel it and not respond to it because you were so used to like that intentional discomfort of kundalini? It was because I was so what you said, accustomed to the intentional discomfort. And it's so it's such a tragedy, I think, because so many women are told they can't do kundalini yoga while they're pregnant. I pretty much only did kundalini. I did a lot of different yoga, but mainly kundalini. So I have a course now around that um, called Pregnant and Powerful, which is combining kundalini and vinyasa and mantra and all the stuff. Because I really wanted to have a natural birth and I would have been fine however it manifested. But what I did in those kundalini practices when I was pregnant was that I did a lot of challenging moves, a lot with the arms up for a long time, really training myself how to breathe, stay calm, stay comfortable amidst intense sensation. When we think of that as kundalini yoga, I mean, it's like, what better thing could a pregnant person do. Absolutely. Of course, we yeah. need to make all the appropriate. Like, of course, we need to make all the appropriate modifications for the breath work, and you know, and that's why I did the course. So people, if they want, you know, like an outline of of how to do this all safely, they can. But yeah, I was so comfortable with discomfort that I didn't really realize how far in labor I was. We should have called the midwife much, much, much sooner. <laughs> so. Well, that's I, I. I think that's a good problem to have that you were. <laughs> You're farther along. Like a lot of women are like coming to the hospital and like, sorry, you're only two centimeters. You're like, what? And you're just like, what? And you hear all those crowding. stories, right? You hear <laughs> yeah. all those stories. So at the same time, I had all that in the back of my head. I was like, first babies take a long time. Like this can't be mm-hmm. it. This can't be it. But it was. So yeah, it's wow. fun story. Yeah. That is great. And then how do you feel like it helped with obviously the recovery after birth? And when I say that, not even immediate, but like right afterward, but like post two months. I don't know how old your son is now, but even in the next coming year or whatever. So in this, in the pregnant and powerful course, I give, I assign a 40 day Kriya for postpartum. Now, obviously you can't start that the day after you give birth. That's not the intention, right? Depending if you've had a C-section or, but you know, there's, there's a recovery time, but once you can move and work out again, what I did was a 40 day Kundalini practice that what a blessing this practice is because this Kriya completely focuses on strengthening the low back, which as a new mama, you really need because you're, you're carrying around your kiddo now and you're mm-hmm. breastfeeding. There's a lot of extra weight right in the front of the body and it works the abdominals. So starting to you know kind of readjust that part of the body. And what I found was that doing a very disciplined, and it's so counterintuitive, doing an extremely disciplined practice in the postpartum months. So like, you know, starting six, six weeks, right? You're just kind of, you're in bed, you're nursing, you're doing the thing. But I think at six weeks, every time my son would go down for his morning nap, I would get on the mat and do this Kriya. And it was just a non-negotiable. I told my husband, I was like, it's going to be 40 days. And when you have a new baby, your life has just been thrown into chaos. It's like everything, especially for your first child, it's like everything you have known and loved, time to yourself, right? Uh, ability to eat hot food without you know a baby on your lap and oh, it's cold. Like everything, your whole life is gone. You're not sleeping in normal patterns anymore. Your digestion's all funky because of all the stuff that just went on. Hemorrhoids are real, right? We can talk about mm-hmm. this. Like, yeah. This is what yeah. happens at birth. So, so creating consistency, like one thing that's the same every day. One thing that's the same every day for me was this practice. And, and listeners, like it doesn't have to be a Kundalini practice. It could be anything. But just 
the discipline and the consistency of that saved me during that time. It saved my life because I wasn't sleeping well. I, I, I was getting up, nursing all the time. I mean, my entire world was topsy-turvy. But the Kriya, the daily practice at the same time each day, it was like that one thing. And it became like my, my metronome. And what I found is that it really ironed out and evened out my energy. So regardless of whether I had slept well or I had been up all night with the baby, it kind of created this like equilibrium because Kundalini works with energy in that way. And it's so important to have your energy be stable during this time. Something I talk about in the course is that your baby shares your aura for the first years of life. You you have the same electromagnetic field uh, according to Yogi Bhajan and Kundalini Yoga. So those first years with your little one are so critical. And so I knew that going in. So I was like, I want my energy to be really incredible, not just for me, but for him. You know, he's sharing, sharing my energy so intimately during this time. And so the discipline of the practice was a huge gift to me. So I did, did this Kriya and it's in, it's in the course and it's, it's an hour. So it's not a joke. Right, right. But the, the good news is the last 20 minutes of it are meditation. So, so if your baby wakes oh. up early, which mine often did, you can kind of do the meditation the second latter half of it with, with your little one or, you know. Yeah. It, it How old is your son now? So, he's two. So oh, he's my goodness. developing that third chakra willpower. It's all about I and no and I'll do it. And again, the the chakras give us such a fun framework to understand ourselves and our children and know kind of oh. what's going on at an energetic level, right? Because otherwise you just go crazy. It's just such a challenging time. Yeah. And the def- I mean, it's really interesting how the developmental... So anybody who's not aware, but there's like a the the different chakras, the seven different chakras kind of correspond to different developmental milestones. And within that, when it's developing, what are the kind of traits that come up? And and yeah, that third one is the core ambition, will, um, vision. And yeah, there's this sense of getting, getting more of a sense of self. Mm-hmm, and exactly. yeah, so how do you bring the chakras into your teaching or do you, is it mostly with, um, it, with the Kundalini Kriyas or do you also bring them in in other ways? That's a great question. So there's so many different ways that I work with them. I think I have a lot of material on YouTube and I'm always really about like meet the student where they are. Right. So for a lot of people, and I think especially on YouTube and online, like they don't know what the chakras are. They I was going to say, why don't you them. tell, like, pretend like yeah, some maybe. people, a lot of people don't know what we're talking about. So what, how would you describe it to the, yeah, to viewer, listener? Um, what would you say? So the chakras are a place where energy is stored, assimilated, and expressed. And there are seven of them. So there are these really incredible energy hubs. So a lot of times people are familiar with acupuncture and this idea of meridian lines. So think of your chakras as like the super city where a lot of these meridian lines or nadis, as we call them in yoga, are interconnecting. And each chakra contains a vital program. So our first chakra, which is at the floor of the pelvis, base of the spine, is the program of safety and security. You can almost think of it as Haslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, right? Like, am I safe? (laughs) Is there food? Uh, So a lot of our base needs and desires. And then from there, the chakra system goes up the spine. So there's seven of these energy centers from the base of the spine all the way up to the crown of the head. And they all kind of deal with different issues. So I think of each as like kind of a little computer program. Like we all have that friend who dates a jerk and they break up and you're so excited. And then the next guy she dates is a jerk, right? That's, that's the a program that's going on in her interpersonal chakra that's repeating over and over and over and over again. So just like we can update our iPhones when we plug them in and do that software update, we can do that with our chakra system. And we can do this at a whole body quantum level. But what's so nice about the chakras is it breaks it down into kind of these different key areas, relationships, or like Lara was talking about before, the ego, your willpower, your ambition, your sense of self, your energy level. You know, that's all third chakra. Uh, and the level of your communication, which would be our, sixth, uh, our fifth chakra, excuse me, 
at the throat center. So they're just such an incredible framework, I think, when you really want to start exploring the yoga with the big Y, like we kind of talked about at the beginning, when you're ready to go beyond just asana. The chakras are incredible because they also intersect body, mind, spirit. You can do poses, for example, that could stimulate your third chakra, meaning making it more rajastic, making it more energized. Or if you're like me and you're go, go, go all the time, (laughs) I need to do poses that pacify my third chakra actually to bring it more into a state of homeostasis balance. So it's this incredible tool for self-inquiry. And then when you really want to start personalizing your own practice, it gives you this incredible tool set to sort of say, okay, I need more of this type of posture. And this affects pranayama as well, right? There's different breathing techniques would do to activate, stir up the Sudha throat chakra and other exercises in pranayama would do to maybe calm it down. So with the content I put out there, a lot of what's out on YouTube and kind of free is just about educating people about what the chakras are and helping people have an embodied experience of each chakra. So I have the seven-day chakra challenge program that is pretty popular and you do a, there's a yoga class and a meditation for each chakra. So there it's kind of covering the fundamentals. So each people, each person can hopefully feel like they have an experience of what the energy center is. After that, you can go so much deeper because once you know what the energy center is, so a lot of these classes and meditations are just kind of exploring, this is what root chakra is, that kind of thing. Then we switch over to, well, is your root chakra in excess or deficiency, right? So a chakra can be in one of three states. It can be in excess, balance, or deficiency. And then it gets really complicated because you need to sort of change stuff up pending what you need individually to balance. Wow, that's, that was a great explanation. <laughs> And I, I thought probably a lot of people are going to be like, I want to, I want to learn more about that. So they can see, they can find that um, seven day on your YouTube channel. Yes. If they just go to brettlarkin.com forward slash chakra, it'll mm-hmm. take them right to that seven day challenge that I mentioned. I'm not sure all of it's on YouTube, but I think we took some of the meditations and things off, but they can get it uh, through, you know, you enter your email and then it sends you one chakra meditation a day for seven days. It's really nice. Right. That's wonderful. Well. Okay, so let's talk about the balance because you're doing a lot. Uh, And I know as many women, and I don't want to just say women, but mothers and uh, entrepreneurs and that that combination, how are you balancing and juggling being a mom and an entrepreneur? What is the biggest struggle for you? And then what what is any piece of advice you would give someone? Such a great question. I think for me, Discipline is very important. I know that might sound strange, but a little bit like we talked about the 40-day practice or the consistent practice. There were many years for me in my life where I'd say, I do yoga every day, but I wasn't really tracking it. And I was kind of doing like what I felt like doing when I felt like it and kind of skipping when I didn't want to. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think something that really fuels my energy and has been so helpful for me is the morning sadhana, practicing every morning before the rest of my house gets up. And I know that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow because we love our sleep. But that's why we can hack with yoga nidra and do all these other things. Because what my experience has really taught me over the years is that in order for me to feel proud of myself and stand up as a teacher trainer, I mean, I'm sure it's the same for you, Lara. It's like a huge responsibility when you're not just teaching students, but you're like, wow, I'm training teachers. I really want to hold myself to a high standard. For me, having that discipline of the morning practice and getting that ticked off every day, it makes the rest of the day flow so smoothly. I'm going to not get the quote exactly correct, but Yogi Bhajan used to say, wake up, get up, set up, right? Like we need to set up for the day that's approaching. Think of a tennis player or someone who's in a boxing match, right? The tennis player, like they have that center ready position where they're holding the racket and they're kind of bouncing side to side, like ready if a forearm's going to come or a backhand's going to come. Same with the boxer, right? They're like, they got their little, I don't know what it's called, but like they're like kind of fake jab and they're, they're ready for the punch. They're on so their many toes. Of us, yeah. They're on their yeah. toes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like so yeah. many of us, and I lived my life this way for like decades, so I can speak to it. Like we just wake up in a 
fist is getting thrown at our face, right? Like my baby is crying or, you know, I wake up and I look at my email right away or something. That's like, you didn't take the time to set up. Like the forehand is just coming at you. Someone just served and a ball is whizzing across the net. And it is very hard in my experience, very, very hard to really connect with your higher identity and move through the day in a state of grace when that's the way you start the day. So what I love about the morning practice is that you take that time to get in ready position before all the other stuff starts hitting you, your family members, emails, demands of modern life and goodness. I mean, as women, how many roles do we play, right? So I really think that has been critical for me in how to balance motherhood, work. It's the setup. You've got to get up and you've got to set up. <laughs> Love because it. Otherwise, yeah. you're, just in, you're just in like a blur all day. Well, it's really about being proactive versus reactive. Yes, if you set so yourself well up, you are then, you know, like you're in charge. Like you're putting out the, the way things are going to go. You're setting it up for that versus just kind of responding or reacting. Um, and and yeah, if you're going to want to get ahead in the in, in your business and have plans, and you have to have that frame of mind as well, that you are looking forward while also being present, but you're not just kind of responding to what's being thrown at you. 100%. So well said. Yes. So that is, I think, is the biggest way that I achieve balance. I know it's very hard for people to get up early at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. or whatever it means for you before your household gets up. But I really recommend exploring it and just go to bed earlier. I don't know. Yeah, who so what, it, time do, like, what time do you go to bed? <laughs> well, when I had a two-year-old, I, yeah, that's actually very reasonable. I was going to say, yeah. when, I had my, when my kids were little, I went to bed you know, a little bit after them just to if I hadn't seen my husband, but I, you know, he, he works for himself. I work for my, myself. So we were always able to see each other a little bit during the day as well. And, but yes, yeah, sleep does matter, but I, I, I totally agree. Setting the day off to that. Um, I don't get up at five, but boy, I used to, and there's going to be a time where I will again. Uh, but I'm lucky enough that I can, um, fit my, I still have that kind of outlook. I keep my, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I keep a notebook by my bed and before I go to bed, I just write down anything that, you know, just brain dumps. So I'm not going to go to bed with those thoughts like, oh yeah, I remember to do this. I just like whoop, write it all out. And then when I wake up, I, I pause a little bit. People always ask about my routine. I don't have the routine that you have, but I pause and I think like, what do I need to clear from my head here? Do I have, and a lot of times I don't have anything because I've kind of cleared it the night before. And then I look at my pad and kind of think, okay, well, this is what's up for today. And it just, um, again, it's like putting my, like, again, I'm, I'm, I'm in control of my, of my map and my destiny, mm-hmm. but, um, I think it's so great to have that morning practice. And I know a lot of Kundalini practitioners, uh, do that. And I think it's, it's wonderful. Well, you are a stellar human being. So what is your goal for the next five years for yourself? Speaking of goals. What an exciting question. I feel like no one asks these questions enough, right? Wouldn't it be nice to go right. to a cocktail party and that's the question? Because yeah. it, it, it forces you to think. It's a wonderful question. I, I, I really would like to develop more books around the chakras and the yoga sutras specifically. I have a chakra book planner, but I want to evolve it and I want to do some work with, with the sutras in terms of journaling and writing that's like a journal people can, can buy, like the chakra one I have. And, and then really training teachers. I think that's, I found for me now at this point, and it might be similar for you, but it's like the biggest way I can make an impact. So the online yoga teacher trainings, the 200 hours been around for a long time, the 300, 500 hour program I just finished this year. And it's so much content <laughs> to, to, to get together. Now that it's there, I really just want to focus on the live coaching aspect of that program and, and really helping yoga teachers step into a leadership role and realizing that when you become a yoga teacher, you also become an entrepreneur. They kind of leave that off the brochure of a lot of trainings, mm-hmm. but you do. You know, you're in business for yourself and that requires a whole skill set that I don't think is being taught 
and I'm, I'm sure you can can relate to this, that there's just a different mindset in a sense that you have to develop and learn to apply to your business. I kind of think of myself as like yoga me and then business me, right? And we have to be able to shift fluidly between the two. And this isn't a negative thing. Like this is a beautiful thing. It's like Lila, it's that dance, right? Of, of being the teachings, but then also feeling out like, how do we make these teachings accessible? How, how do I get myself out there? And yeah, so I think books and the trainings, that's what I'm most excited about for, for five years from today. Thank you for asking. I love that. I love that. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And can you just let everybody know where they can find you, all the different places online or on the phone? Yeah, definitely. The, the easiest way is just to go to my website, brettlarkin.com. So it's B-R-E-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-